According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew 13 is our text this morning as we deal with these parables. Parables of the kingdom. Matthew chapter 13. We uh, have spent two sessions now introducing this chapter and giving what I think is the most important background that will help us to realize what's going on in parables and why it is that the Lord is teaching in parables. And so we've covered that. I'll touch on it just here for a moment, and then we will launch into the parables themselves. Seven of them that we're going to deal with here in this chapter, starting with the parable of the sower, which we read here in verses 3 through 9. The explanation for that parable comes in verses 18 through 23. We also have the tares and the wheat. Uh, described here in this passage, starting in verse 24, taking you down through verse 30. Um, It also has an explanation that comes up later on in verses 36 through 43. Then parable number three is the mustard seed. You're going to notice these are going to start getting shorter. Parable of the mustard seed is in verses 31 and 32. Uh, Parable number four, the leaven in verse 33, just a single verse. Parable of the hidden treasure in verse 44, the pearl of great price in verses 45 and 46, and then the dragnet in verses 47 through 50. We're going we're gonna to cover those in a single point, even though they are parables 5, 6, and 7. We're going to cover them in a single point uh, because of their interrelated nature, and that should, uh, that should become obvious as well. So seven total parables here in this chapter. When you get to the conclusion in verses 51 and 52... When he asked, have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And Jesus said to them, therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. And that then becomes a simile. You have the word like there describing scribes of the kingdom. And because of the nature of that simile, uh, verse 52 is often thought of as yet another parable. It's often thought of as the eighth parable of this passage. I prefer not to think of it that way that uh, I limit the numbering here to just the seven that we've just numbered for you but view the simile that's given there in the conclusion as a summary of everything he had to say in the entire chapter so we'll have uh, more to say about that as we proceed through uh, these particular items all right before we begin any of this though it's important that we take a moment for silent prayer to assure that distractions are set aside and we're prepared to handle truth shall we pray Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and we thank you for the privilege and blessing we have to assemble together and to receive instruction. Father, we ask for distractions to be set aside. We ask, Father, that you would take every thought captive in obedience to Christ Jesus. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. Father, humble us under the authority of your word. This is not the teaching of man, but your your very word, your very authority that's designed to build us up in the faith and strengthen us in the inner man on this very day. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, if you are following in the outline, we're ready for main point three at this point. We've dealt with the context for this under point one, the fact that this is not the first parable he's ever taught, but it is the first extended portion of parables. And uh, there'll be another one coming up in chapter 18, by the way. We'll have another extended series of uh, parables. In fact, the majority of his teaching from this point to the cross will come in parabolic form when he's speaking in public, when he goes into private with his disciples, he'll be able to teach them in plain language. And there's a, a tremendous benefit to that for them in uh, John chapters 12, 13, and 14. But parables are going to become the centerpiece of his method of teaching from this point forward because a line has been crossed. A rejection has taken place. And that rejection will only grow in the, uh, in the months ahead. We're about a year and a half from the cross now at this point of time. This is the fall a year and and just almost six months, a year and five months really, uh, before the cross. Under point two, we examine the reasons for parabolic teaching. And I would encourage you to um, review last week's message. Either get it off the website or ask Terry for a tape or a CD. Uh, Review last week's message because we discussed the reasons for the parables. How it is that unbelieving Israel are going to hear earthly words but not understand the spiritual 
warning behind them and how all of this is fulfillment of Isaiah and other passages in the Old Testament and how God is going to use that. He's going to use this current hardening of Israel in order to call out a bride, in order to usher in the current age in which we live, the dispensation of the church, where Jews and Gentiles are one body in Christ, and he's preparing a a heavenly people for his son. It all fulfills God's purpose. It all works together for good, and it's necessary in order for the church age to be manifest. Still, it's sad on behalf of Israel that they have to go through this time of blindness, this time of hardness of heart, where it it will literally take... The, the tribulation of Israel to bring about their repentance. Without the tribulation, Israel as a nation will not repent. They will not accept uh, Jesus as the Christ. And uh, we'll, see, we'll see application of that in future tribulational studies. In the book of Revelation, we're going to see the absolute crushing wrath of God that it takes to humble Israel to accept their Christ. And that will be a, a preeminent feature in the, in the book of Revelation. So reasons for the parabolic teaching then become important and as you go through uh romans chapter 10 and romans chapter 11 just hold your finger at matthew 13 we're gonna be back here in a very quick moment but in romans chapter 11 these chapters 9 10 and 11 this section here in romans is critical for understanding how god is not abandoning israel if if you uh subscribe to replacement theology it's it's just a sad sad view of uh, of god because it it rejects the idea of his faithfulness he will be faithful to promises he made to abraham to promises he made to david and if you think so little of god's faithfulness that he can just throw away israel and replace it with the church then uh you you have to wonder how could any of us be saved anyway if god's really that much of a liar and can go back on his promises then then none of us have any salvation so in, in Romans chapter 11, we see in verse 11, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? In other words, it's not a permanent, irrevocable fall. Yes, they stumbled. They're currently in a hardness of heart, but they will stand up again. And that's a, the, the language of verse 11, may it never be, is, is the strongest of oaths imaginable. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. And the, the current nature of the church, where you have Jew and Gentile, one body in Christ, is a provocation to jealousy the idea that the covenant nation is no longer unique in the sense that they had been from abraham to to the cross is extraordinary and it's designed to provoke them to jealousy and this uh, provocation to jealousy will work together for good and will accomplish their salvation when you glance down to verses 25 through 27 it makes this point ecclesiastical jealousy and tribulational affliction will work together for good that is the good of Israel's national salvation. We read it again in Romans 11 and verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. Every time Paul says, I do not want you to be uninformed, or I do not want you to be unaware, or I would not have you to be ignorant. The idea is, is that these are realms that are vulnerable to false teaching. And we observe that. We observe the false teaching of replacement theology that just twists these things. He says, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So there is a time when this is going to be over and done with, and that coincides with God's permissive will in allowing Gentile dominion over the, uh, the nation of Israel. So all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, that is the Savior will come from Zion. Remember, salvation and deliverance are the same word in Hebrew, in Greek, whatever language you're looking at. So you could say the Savior will come from Zion, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So it will be the combination of ecclesiastical jealousy and tribulational affliction. Hell on earth that's unleashed to bring about the repentance of Israel. All right, so those are the reasons for parabolic teaching. We're able to move on now to the first of the parables, parable number one, parable of the sower. It is the most well-known of the parables. It is the longest of the parables, although wheat and tares comes as a fairly lengthy one also. But this is the longest of the parables, and it has the most complete explanation. It's given in verses 3 through 9. The explanation comes in verses 18 through 23. So let's look at it. Matthew 13, 3. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. 
And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, the language there is similar to what we have been looking at in Revelation, where he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, the local churches. Similar language. It does require spiritual discernment to understand the truth of a parable. Uh, different enough, of course, that this is not a church-age text, and uh, the nature of this is, is, uh, is what it is, coming in the dispensation of Israel, recorded for us in the Gospels. Now, the explanation comes in verses 18 through 23, and I think we're very well known with this. But even before we read the explanation, we, we understand that the, there's a sowing activity taking place, and there are four um, venues for the sowing. There's the road, the rocky soil, the thorny ground, and then the good soil. Those are the four venues, four realms in which the activity takes place. And so you can think your way through the four venues and realize that the same activity is happening in all four venues. Seed is being sown. That is, the Word of God is going forth. And we'll see that in the explanation comes here in verse 18. But the difference is entirely the nature of where the seed goes forth or the quality of the soil upon which the seed hits. The first one isn't even described as soil. It's described as a road beside the road. It's not until the rocky places that we're told that there's soil. It's just not much soil, not much depth of soil. Uh, but we don't even have the term soil in the first venue, which is the roadside. Then the thorny ground, okay, there's more soil there. It's deeper than the rocky ground. However, because of the thorns, uh, the, anything that then grows is choked. And then venue number four, or uh, environment number four, atmosphere number four, the, the, the realm or sphere in which the activity takes place, is actually good soil. Good being defined by, it's not near the road, it's, not, uh, it's cleared of the rocks, and it's cleared of the thorns. All right? That's described as good soil. And even within the good soil, though, there's still distinctions to be made. Because when the, the crop is produced... There is variety within the crop, some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. And so there are varieties of uh, production that takes place then. Now, we, we just glean all that by observation here in those verses 3 through 9. The explanation starts in verse 18. It says, Hear then the parable of the sower. And, the, and part of this is there, they have a question. Why are you speaking to them in parables? And, and we'll address that. Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted. But see, to them it has not been granted. This is a message that they have the permission, the privilege, the entitlement to comprehend. Israel, though, does not, by virtue of their unbelief, by virtue of their hardness of heart, by virtue of their rejection. And keep, please, 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 keep that context in mind. Because we want to ask ourselves, well, what's the difference between this and anything from the Word of God? I mean, doesn't 1 Corinthians say that the word of God must be spiritually ascertained that the, to the natural man is foolishness. So doesn't that context apply to anything that God speaks forth? Well, we run into a snare there if we if we think in those terms, because God does indeed have messages for unbelievers. God does indeed have messages for warning that's designed to provoke a repentance is designed to turn the unbeliever to to him. And so. The, the idea of he that has an ear, let him hear. The idea that he's speaking in parables so that this group can comprehend and this group cannot comprehend indicates something very different. That prior to this, he had a message that both groups could comprehend. Even the unregenerate crowd. And what's that? The general messages of gospel hearing. The general messages of the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The general invitations to uh, the, the salvation messages as they are put forth, even to unbelievers, see. But here he starts to speak to them in parables. And the reason is given to you it has been granted, to them it has not been granted. And you got to, and the more you dwell on verse 11, and the more you, you identify that something different is happening here in Matthew 13 that was not featured consistently in chapters 1 through 11, you realize that the them, who is the them? 
To them it has not been granted. Who is that them? And how is it that they were recipients of messages in those first 11 chapters? See, so once you answer the we and the them there, then hopefully these things will, will start to make sense. All right, in any event, these are messages that relate to the mystery. And that's part of uh, what we gave you in the foundational messages two weeks ago, how this is the kingdom revealed in mystery. And we'll talk about that definition here again. Actually, at some length this morning, please remember the term that we've given you, kingdom of heaven, mystery state. Kingdom of heaven, mystery state. When we're talking about kingdom of heaven, mystery state, we're talking about the time frame between Israel's rejection of the Christ and the ultimate acceptance of the Christ. Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand when John the baptizer starts to proclaim that the, the, the Messiah has been born. That the, 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 when the baptizer starts to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Jesus Christ is on the earth physically in his humanity at that point. And throughout the baptizer's ministry, that's very true. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then at about the age of 30 or beyond the age of 30, Jesus appears and he's uh, anointed, he's baptized, he begins his public ministry, and he and his disciples likewise start proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, now something's going to happen that's going to delay the kingdom of heaven for more than 2,000 years because he's not seated on David's throne, he's not in Jerusalem, he's not reigning on the earth today. And what happens is Israel rejects their Christ. He is crucified, he dies on the cross, and he returns to his father for this period of time. And so the kingdom of heaven is no longer at hand, but the kingdom of heaven is now ushered into what I'm titling a mystery state. It is the mystery state of the kingdom of heaven. The time frame between the rejection and the acceptance of the Christ. So kingdom of heaven, mystery state. That's what these parables are all about. These parables, all of them, are about the kingdom of heaven mystery state. And so we may, we may have a hang-up there. Because in churches like ours, we're very accustomed to thinking in dispensational terms. We want to know, is this Old Testament or New Testament? We want to know, is this Israel or is this the church? And it's great to think in those terms. It's, if you fail to distinguish between Israel and the church, you can confuse so much. So we want to think in those terms. However, in this passage and similar places, oftentimes our hermeneutics can be an obstacle where we've got to overcome because this, this period here, this mystery state does what? It crosses the dispensations. It actually includes the, the, the final uh, period of Israel. It also includes the church, includes the tribulation. So this kingdom of heaven mystery state actually transcends the stewardship of God's program on earth. And I can't say that enough. And if I say that this message and next message and for the next till the rapture, I can't say that enough. Kingdom of heaven mystery state is not a dispensational study because it crosses from the age of the incarnation to the church age to the age of tribulation. It crosses of those, those dispensational transitions there. What we're referring to is the kingdom of heaven as it's been rejected by, the, by Israel, by the kingdom, by the earthly kingdom, say, until it's manifest on the earth. Now, back to the parable of the sower then. All of these parables feature the kingdom of heaven mystery state. So yes, there will be church age application. Yes, there will be tribulation application. Yes, there will be application for the period of time from the rejection of the Christ until he goes to the cross, until he uh, is buried, until he's raised, and throughout the 40 days of his post-resurrection ministry, the kingdom of heaven mystery state actually is inaugurated right here in this chapter. And from this point to Revelation chapter 19, when Christ returns, you're centered on the kingdom of heaven mystery state. All right, parable of the sower. Uh, it's explained in verse 18 and following. Here then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. We typically approach this person as an unbeliever, but I'm going to open it up as a possibility in the realm that this could even be a believer who, because of his carnality, because of his hardness of heart, is not taking in the word of God like we have it in 1 Corinthians 3. The carnal person cannot take in the truth. They're not natural. They are spiritual, but they are carnal, and that's hindering them from their growth. 
Verse uh, 20, the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places. This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with a joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when the affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. So there's your rocky ground soil. And so we, we realize as this is being explained that each realm, each of these venues in terms of described as soil actually refers to individuals and and their circumstances their preparedness to receive the word of god and to apply the word of god thirdly the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns is verse 22 this is the man who hears the word but notice the worry of the world that's the cosmos and the deceitfulness of wealth choke out the word and it becomes unfruitful he has an actual depth of soil He can take the word in. He can uh, have it firmly planted, but these other things are in the way as well. And so it chokes out his fruitfulness and it becomes unfruitful. And then the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil. This is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit. So the, the thorns are gone and it can actually spring forth fruit. Some a hundredfold, some 60 and some 30 difference there being good soil good being defined as not by the road good being defined as rocks cleared away and depth of soil then uh, being produced and also thorns thorns and thistles that are cleared out so you have a good soil a good depth of soil and you can indeed bear fruit so five principles under this first of all the roadside And I would put forth that it's quite possible that the roadside individual is regenerate. I'm calling him the roadside believer. The roadside believer. Now, would this also appear to an unbeliever? Sure. But the roadside believer is carnal and cannot understand the word of God. We're told in verse 19, when anyone hears the word. The roadside believer is carnal and cannot understand the word of God. The agents of the adversary snatch away the seed, seeds that have gone forth. Those are the birds, agents of the adversary. This is, I'm calling him the roadside believer. Now, I used to teach this, that this guy was an unbeliever. The other three are the only believers. However, I started to look closer and I observed some things. First of all, I observed... The term hear, which is given as an imperative in verse 18. Hear then the parable. And even prior to that, we're told that uh, the distinction between us and them in terms of hearing. To you it has been granted to know the kingdom of the mysteries of uh, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted in verse 11. Notice in verse 9, he who has ears, let him hear. And so because of verse 9. Because of verse 9, I started looking at verses 18 and 19 and I realized that this roadside guy, right? This roadside guy who for years I used to say, well, that's just an unbeliever. He never even understood the gospel. Say, started to say, well, wait a minute. Isn't this more than just simply the gospel? This has to be more than just the gospel. This is the word of God as this is being explained. And so... um, as we, uh, as we get this broken down for us here, as the Word of God is taught and as it's heard, the guy's got to have ears to begin with. As verse 9 says, he who has ears, let him hear. If he, didn't, if he didn't have ears, he couldn't hear. In other words, the unbeliever doesn't have spiritual ears. How would he hear? We're told that he hears in verse 19. We're just told that he doesn't understand. So it's not a hearing problem. It's an understanding problem. And and what we have in the Word of God described as people who can hear but can't understand is called carnality. All right? So hold your finger there. And um, you'll notice over in 1 Corinthians 2 and 
And here's what we receive as believers in the church. We receive the word of God and the Holy Spirit is the one who guides us in the truth. And he does so through the spirit. But to whom does the spirit speak? We're told in verse 10, it's to us. For to us, God revealed through the spirit. For the spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. And so the unbeliever who hasn't received the spirit can't take in spiritual truth. It says in verse 12, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit was from God so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. In verse 14, the natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God. Why? He doesn't have the spirit of God. He has the spirit of the world. He's living in this world. It says that's foolishness to him, cannot understand them. They're spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things. So that in chapter two, we have the distinction between an unbeliever and a believer. But notice what happens in chapter three. Even these believers have a problem. And I, brethren, cannot speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh. And so they have the carnality. Now, they're not natural men. You don't lose your salvation. The Corinthians can't go back to being natural men. They're still spiritual. They still are regenerate. They have the Holy Spirit within them. The problem is, though, is he can't speak to them as to spiritual men because of their carnality. And he says, uh, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now, you are still not able, for you are still fleshly, that is carnal. Since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? And so in chapter 2, we have the distinction between unbelievers and believers. In chapter 3, it's believers, the difference between those in carnality and those in spirituality, if you're in fellowship or out of fellowship. And so when we come back now to Matthew 13 and we look at the parable of the sower, we realize, you know what? This is a carnality barrier. It's not, a, it's not an unregenerate barrier. It's not a fact that, that they're not saved and so they can't hear. The fact is they did hear, but they couldn't understand. And that they could hear because they have ears. He who has ears, let him hear. So they are regenerate. They have ears. It's just that they're carnal. And so there's no comprehension of what they're listening to. You sit in a Bible class in carnality, forget learning anything. You can hear earthly words and you might learn on an academic basis. You might accumulate some gnosis in carnality, but you cannot learn the living and abiding word of God in carnality. So I'm calling this man the roadside believer. I'm calling roadside guy the roadside believer. In distinction to how I used to teach this, where I'd say, well, he wasn't even saved to begin with. Because I, I locked in on the fact that he does hear in verse 19. And that uh, from what he said to us, it has been granted to hear, not to them. All right. The, uh, the crowd that didn't even receive it, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Verse 13. Is this making sense? In verse 13, they, while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. They don't hear, they don't understand. The roadside guy, though, he does hear. He just doesn't understand. So the agents of the adversary snatch the seed that has gone forth. Also notice, the, this is one on whom seed was sown beside the road. It says when any, um, that um, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown. Where has it been sown? In his heart. In his heart. See, and I would put forth again, that's an indicator of a regenerate individual. That... It's that it's only to believers that the word of God proceeds to the heart. And so uh, here we have carnal believer that receives the word, but doesn't digest it, doesn't cycle it, doesn't learn it, doesn't understand it. And agents of the adversary snatch that seed. Now, is it Satan himself personally that comes by? Of course not. It's his agents, it's his minions, it's his lackeys, it's his, uh, it's his whole uh, apparatus of, of demons and fallen angels and servants and so forth. I don't presume that uh, the adversary knows any one of us personally. Uh, he's only one angel. He can only be in one place at one time. And, and quite frankly, he's got other people to worry about more so than anybody here. All right. But the agents do go forth. And uh, I hope we can understand that. Those that would just love to keep you in carnality. Those agents and minions that will feed your sin patterns. The agents and minions that will offer up everything imaginable to keep you out of Bible class. Uh, that, oh, we've got we to do this. And there's this bowling league. And there's this uh, knitting circle. And there's this 
uh, hobby. There's this other thing you got to do. And a billion things come up. See, by the way, this also is the methodology for the, uh, the thorny ground coming up in the third example. All right, secondly, the rocky believer. The rocky believer is immature. He's immature. He actually starts to understand what he's taking in. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. So he has a positive attitude to teaching and he receives it. It's kind of interesting. I don't want to say that joy is a dirty word, but when you demonstrate the, the nature of his acceptance, it is an emotional acceptance. It is an emotional acceptance. Now, joy is not a dirty word. There's nothing wrong with emotions. But we want our acceptance of God's word to be more than just simply an emotional benefit. If all we do is believe it because it makes us feel good, if, if the only reason we accept teaching is because of the emotional benefit, we're shallow. Emotional believers that don't back up the emotion with content, with doctrine, with the understanding are shallow believers. I've got to be careful when I say that, though, because you can tip the, the seesaw the other direction, go overboard into the, I call it the, the, the Vulcan categorical doctrinal no emotions allowed Christian where everything is just totally academic, totally mental, totally intellectual, and we deny that we even have emotions. And so joy, ooh, that's a, that's a dirty word. And ooh, what are you, some kind of a weak sister? And what do you, no, let's have a balance with this. He designed us as emotional creatures. There should be a joy. If you can't, if you can't embrace the word of God with joy, there's a problem. But, you, but that can't be the only element that causes you to embrace the Word of God. You must, enjoy, you must embrace it with joy. You must also embrace it in truth, with your mind, with your understanding. And so this guy receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself. See, it's the rooting and grounding that, that uh, will give you that depth of soil. So we're talking about an immature believer. Now, carnality produces immaturity, but he's not so carnal that he's consistently hardened, and he's not... So carnal that he's not even taking in the word of God. He's taking in the word of God. He's just taking it in, though, on a superficial basis. He just wants enough. I call this the starvation level, where if he if he if he comes, he gets it once a week and he feels better about himself and he drops something in an offering box and he can go out feeling, OK, I'm OK for the week. I did, and I did the nod to God, and I'm okay. And you have that, that little emotional sense that, okay, I'm fine. I'm certainly better than this other guy that skipped church today. Okay? That's the emotional basis. It's shallow. And it does not stand you the test when the, when the affliction arises. That's what this passage says. It's only temporary. When the affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And, and notice, this guy is a guy of immediately. Did you notice that? When he received the word, he immediately accepted it with joy. But when the persecution comes, he immediately falls away. And that's the nature of, of, of an immature believer. Everything's all immediately. Jump here, jump there. React to this. That's an immature approach. And this is the rocky believer. Immature with the, without the soul, the soil capacity to endure affliction. Almost said soul capacity. Same thing. Soil capacity, soul capacity to endure affliction the third the thorny believer is entangled by circumstances and details of life now a thorny believer could also be a rocky believer it doesn't say that that uh, the thorny ground doesn't have any rocks around i think you could be both you could be a rocky guy and a thorny guy you could probably be a road guy too but here's the thorny guy this is the man who hears the word, and it's not that he has a, depth of, uh, uh, a failure in the depth of soil. He's fine on the depth of soil. He's not, he's not peeling away because of the affliction. He's peeling away because of the, the prosperity. He, he passed his adversity testing. He was faced with adversity. Some heat came. He was fine. He cleared the rocks out. He had depth of soil. He was doing all right. And so then the adversary got even more devious and said, all right, let's hit you with some prosperity. And that's the hardest test of all. This guy blew it. The worry of the world, the deceitfulness of wealth. 
started to choke out the word. He thought, and, and you see why it's so deceitful? Because he thought he could handle it. He thought, oh, yeah, this isn't going to change me. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll handle this. Oh, oh yeah, I'm still going to be faithful in Bible class. You betcha. And you look at it and you look back and you say, well, have you born any fruit lately? No. The production died. So here's the thorny ground. And I've said many times, this, this prosperity test is harder than adversity. We're being tested right now in, in prosperity testing as a congregation. See, it's certainly a, a whole lot different than it was way back in the day. You know, you had 14 families in the directory and, and really it was one or two that was kind of keeping the, the lights from being shut down because the electric company was going to uh, you know, cut the lights off if we didn't pay the bill. And uh, the deacons are left trying to figure out, do we pay the electric bill or do we pay the pastor? Hmm. You know, it was kind of tough. And the giving wasn't doing it, so what do you do? Well, that's the adversity testing. Now, you get the other spectrum on things. And you say, well, wait a minute. We want to stay faithful. We don't want to get all full of ourselves or get all prideful and start getting uh getting uh, because we have a, a little opportunity what are we going to do with it that's the whole church of philadelphia testing the open door testing so here's thorny ground and and it's choked out it becomes unfruitful interestingly enough it's kind of the antithesis of what the world would view things they you know, hey if you got wealth and numbers and people and things are going great god must be blessing you really don't you think maybe it's the adversary who's testing us <laughs> so far as that goes. Finally, the good soil believer. The good soil believer is the only believer prepared and capable to bear fruit. Notice prepared and capable. Prepared and capable. And what were the preparations? Getting off the road, clearing the rocks, and clearing the thorns. The, the description of soil here is so simple. It's just simply good Soil, in verse 23. Same thing in verse 8. Others fell on good soil. That's just a tiny little adjective modifying a tiny little noun. Good soil. What does it mean to be good? Well, the context tells you. Everything that precedes it is, is gone. So he's left the roadside. He's uh, cleared the rocks away. And he's rooted out the, uh, the thorns. He's weeded the garden. I mean, if you've ever had a garden, you realize that if you don't do something to it, those weeds come back. They just do. It's the, it's the curse. It's the fallen world we live in. And you weed it and you say, okay, um, um, it's clear of weeds now. Well, it's only clear of the visible ones you think you know about. You know about. But they're coming back. And if you neglect the garden, those weeds are coming back. Also, the rocks will come back. They'll get pushed up from underneath and there you go. So um, the good soil believer, he's the only one prepared and capable. The, the road guy is bearing no fruit. The rocky guy is bearing no fruit. The, the thorny guy is bearing no fruit. The good soil guy is the only one bearing fruit. And even there, there's a picture here with three different good soil guys, and they're bearing different amounts of fruit. 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. What's the difference? You have to kind of go beyond the parable because the parable doesn't explain it. But I think it's reasonable to recognize two things. First of all, God gives the results. All right? So that's his business. If he wants to produce 30-fold, great. If he wants to produce 60-fold, great. If he wants to produce 100-fold, great. I don't worry about it. We sow, somebody else waters, God causes the growth. Ultimately, results are in his, in his hands, whatever he wants to do. Remember that we have gifts, ministries, and effects. The effects are the Father's business. He'll deal with all that. Another way you can look at it, the second way you can look at it is that even amongst good soil, there is still a, a, the degrees of faithfulness. How faithful are you willing to become? Faithful until death, of course, is the maximum. And in all likelihood, the, the, what kept the 60 guy from being a 100 guy is uh, that he had about 40% of himself in the way. And what kept the 30 guy from being a 60 guy or being a 100 guy? Well, he had about 70% of himself in the way. He uh, had been prepared, 
and he uh, had endured the afflictions and he had passed the prosperity testing and he was bearing fruit. He was being fruitful, but there was still something that limited what he did. And so he only bore forth 30. All right. What's the principle here? The underlying principle. The underlying principle of the kingdom of heaven mystery estate. And again, we're abbreviating that. K-O-H-M-S. Capital K, little O, capital H, parentheses, M-S. Kingdom of heaven mystery state. The underlying principle of the kingdom of heaven mystery state is the principle of learning the word of God and bearing fruit. Learning the word of God and bearing fruit. Everything in this parable is about learning the word of God and bearing fruit. All four realms, all four venues for this parable. Learning the word of God and bearing fruit. We call it the Christian way of life. It's about the perception and application of Bible doctrine. It's about living the word and, or learning the word and living the word. Inhale, exhale. That is the underlying principle of the kingdom of heaven mystery state. So is that, is that consistent with the church age? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a feature of the dispensation of the church. We are learning the word of God and we are bearing fruit. That is an underlying principle for the dispensation of the church. But it's also going to be an underlying principle for the tribulation. Learning the word of God and making application. See, dispensationally, there's a lot of things that the church doesn't do that was designed for Israel. See, if you think about it, uh, we're not an earthly nation to, uh, in the midst of other earthly nations. That was Israel. Church is a heavenly people called out from all the earthly nations. Uh, the whole idea that we're going to establish a, a, a theocracy on earth as some kind of a utopia nation that all the Christians of the world can stream to, and here we have it, is that dispensationally now, is that a role for the church? Is, is the bride of Christ commanded to set up a Christian nation on the planet? No, the covenant nation is Israel. And it's the role of the dispensation of Israel to do that. They will fulfill that in the millennium. But there's roles that the church is designed to portray that Israel can't fulfill. See? And so maintaining those distinctions is important. However, in this realm, in this, in this regard, as far as the kingdom of heaven mystery state is concerned, the underlying principle is taking the word of God and apply it. And that is applicable in the, in the church. It's also going to be applicable in the tribulation. Because if you think about it, in the tribulation, Israel is not being called upon to, uh, to be that, that uh, covenant nation. They are the covenant nation, but they're being afflicted. They're being purged. They're being, the unbelievers are being removed. Believers are going to have to take in the word of God and apply it because the mark of the beast is there, hell's on earth, and everything is, is bringing about this, this wrath of God. I'm hoping this makes some sense. That live the word is, is the hallmark of the church age, but it will also be applied to the tribulation of saints. And they're going to have to live the word. They're going to be under such persecution and affliction. It'll make being thrown to the lions in the first century seem like, seem like a picnic. They're going to have to live the word daily. We have it so soft and easy in our prosperity, it's uh, hard to imagine what the tribulation is even going to be like. There's the underlying principle. Each one, by the way, each one of these parables is going to give you a principle for the kingdom of heaven mystery state. First one is learning the word of God and bearing fruit. <clears throat> All right, second parable, tares and wheat. Tares and wheat are given in verses 24 through 30. They're explained in verses 36 through 43. Jesus presented another parable to them. So this is point four, parable number two, tares and wheat. The parable is presented in verses 24 through 30, and the explanation is given in verses 36 through 43. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Right away we notice a difference. Good is modifying seed. That we're not dealing with a distinction of realms. We're not talking about a distinction of, of venues. There's only one venue in this, in this uh, parable. 
There's one venue and there's one seed. It's good seed. But there's two crops that are planted. Notice. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. So there's one realm. There's one field. But there are two active agents. There's the man who owns the field and then he has an enemy. And there's two sowings going on. The one who owns the field is sowing the good seed and then the enemy is sowing tares. Tares among the wheat. Tares being a counterfeit. Tares being uh, something that looks like wheat but doesn't have the value that wheat has. And so what happens? The field just looks like a field because... You can't see it. The seed's been sown. It's under the ground. But then it starts to sprout. It starts to to grow. And lo and behold, what happens? Verse 26, when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. We have a problem. We have conflict. So the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, do you want us then to go gather them up? So what's the solution? And he said, no, for while you're gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. See, there's a problem. They are inseparable now. Is it ideal? No, it's not ideal. Is it, uh, is it, uh, is it a problem that you've got these tares mixed in with wheat? Yeah, that's a big problem. Was, was the, the father completely ignorant that this was taking place? Of course not. He knew exactly that it was taking place. When they say, how did this happen? He knows exactly who did it, how they did it, when they did it, why they did it. He let it happen. He says, no, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together. Notice, tares actually do grow, interestingly enough. Allow them to grow together and, uh, until the time of the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. So there's your parable. And it's interesting. There's so much that crusaders, I, you know, the colonel taught crusader arrogance, and, and we see it. It's lived out. Crusaders are always trying to solve things and fix it now. You know what? There are things that aren't going to get fixed now. They're going to grow, they're going to go their course, and things will get worse. We don't like that. Let's fix it now. The father says, no, I've got a plan. It will be resolved. In this case, it will be resolved at the end of the age. Reapers are already prepared. There will be no confusion, you know, that these will be gathered in, those will be gathered in, they'll be destroyed, we'll be in the barn. Now, the explanation comes in verses 33. I'm sorry, verses 36 through 43. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the terrors of the field. And it's interesting. They ask him to explain it. And you start to wonder, is it possible that, that they should have learned from the parable of the sower, and they could have come to their own understanding? Well, he explains it to them. He, uh, it's uh, anyway. It's interesting. I think in the in the Luke parallel, if I remember right, I said I was going to bring in Luke and Mark at one point. Let me look at Luke eight. Uh, there's one point when he's kind of surprised. You need you need an explanation of this. <laughs> you know, didn't I just walk you through this already with the parable of the sower? And um, No, it's not Luke 8. Let me try Mark 4. And actually, in my mind, it might not even be in this chapter. It might even be... Okay, yeah, the question comes in Mark 4 and verse 13. He said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand the parables? And uh, how, how will you understand all the parables, he says. You know, if you have a hang-up with this very first one, what are you going to do with the next six that are right on the way? Okay. 
And so uh, then he gives them the, uh, the uh, parable of the seed here in verses 26 and following and different things there. Okay, that's not what I thought it was, but that's fine. Back to Matthew 13. Then. He gives them the explanation, verse 36. He left the crowds and went to the house. The disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. All right? That's God the Son, the Son of Man. And he said, The one who sows uh, the, uh, the field is the world. As for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears will let him hear. So there's your explanation. The solution is not going to come until the end of the age. The solution will not come until angels are sent forth to physically remove every unbeliever from this planet. You know, the crusaders that are going to transform this world somehow. McGee said they're whitewashing the devil's world. The, what is their solution in their crusading? I've heard it. I've heard it all. I've read it all. I, I, I don't know how I got on their mailing list, but they send me stuff. All right. I think it's because I'm a pastor and they want me to, you know, just line everybody up. We'll march on down to an election booth somewhere and we're going we're gonna to win this whole world, you know. <laughs> their solution, though, and everything I've ever read and all their emails and everything else, I've yet to see them say, hey, I've got an idea. Let's take every unbeliever uh, off the planet and execute them. Well, of course not. How insane would that be? How do, we, how do we execute every unbeliever on the planet? We can't. He will. The millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ will begin with 100% redeemed humanity. 100% redeemed humanity. That's the solution. In the meantime, we're surrounded by unbelievers. Does that shock you? The whole world lies in the power of Ha Poniras, the evil one. Yes, this is my father's world, but it's been given over. We have to recognize that. Is the darkness getting darker? Yes, it is. Does that depress you? Sometimes, okay, if we're honest, sure. But then we wake up and say, okay, Lord, Jesus Christ controls history. If it's getting darker, we must be close. All right? So you say, are you panicked about next Tuesday? Of course not. Don't be insane. Jesus Christ controls history. He does so today. He'll do so next Tuesday. He'll do so next Wednesday. He'll do so next January. See? <laughs> I'm not panicking about it. Who cares? Would I, do I have a preference? Of course. Would I prefer to have godliness as opposed to sodomites in office? Absolutely. But does my faith rest on it? Can I handle a President Clinton in two more years? Does Jesus Christ control history or not? All right. The solution comes at the end of the age. Now, the end of what age? This is not a rapture passage. Because, yes, the rapture is the end of the church age. However, this is not a church text. Church is mystery. This is the end of the age, specifically the end of the kingdom of heaven mystery state. This is what will end the mystery state and actually usher in the manifest state of the kingdom of heaven on excuse me kingdom of heaven on earth thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven and once the unbelievers are removed and righteousness is established in the millennial kingdom we will be observing this so uh, the solution does not come in the church age and this is not the end of the church age this is the end of the age that is the end of the kingdom of heaven mystery state Okay, and recognize that there's a snatching here. Rec and this, will, if you can, if you can digest it today, you'll have a, you'll be a big step up when you get to chapters 24 and 25, where one is taken and one is left, and so forth. And people want to say that's a rapture passage. No, it's not a rapture passage. 
That's an end of the age passage. And the tares are being removed, bundled up and thrown into the fire. As this parable teaches. The wheat are born again believers placed precisely where the Lord wants them. The wheat are the born again believers placed precisely where the Lord wants them. Why? Well, Jesus is the sower. The Son of Man is the sower. The field is the world. Jesus Christ planted the seed. He planted you where he wants you. Remember, he's in charge of ministry, and that includes the geographic will where you are. You're in a world surrounded by tears. You know, the plan of God didn't call for you to be saved and then immediately to be transported to heaven and get out of this fallen world. If, if believers were transported to heaven at the moment of their salvation, who would give the gospel? <laughs> who led you to Christ? Well, I was led to Christ by my mother, by a born-again believer who was left in the world because she wasn't taken out to heaven the moment she was saved, which was a good thing because that meant she was still around in, uh, on earth in September of 1973 to present the gospel to me. To me, one of the most frightening things of the whole idea of tribulation is the fact that the morning after the rapture, there's no redeemed on the planet. So what kind of witnessing is taking place? kind of evangelism goes on? There's no more messengers. No more believers are on the planet in the morning after the rapture. That, in my mind, that's more frightening than uh, the gate of the abyss and 200 million demons and things like that. Think about it in those terms. The tares are the counterfeit believers. There's a reason why he sowed tares. He didn't sow strawberries. He didn't sow, uh, you know, other things. He, told, he sowed that which would have an appearance to match the other. That's intentional. The tares are the counterfeit believers placed precisely where the devil wants them. And where does he want them? In church. Right alongside the true believers. Right alongside the true believers. So he plants a phony. He plants an imposter. He plants someone that can have an appearance, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Someone who can say the right words, but there's no reality behind them. Is that descriptive of the church age or what? But it's not a church age text. It's a kingdom of heaven mystery state text. Now, yes, that encompasses the church age, but it also encompasses the tribulation. It also encompasses the, uh, the, the final year and a half of the Lord's earthly ministry. What was Judas Iscariot, if not a tear, sown amongst the wheat? He blended in with the other eleven, but he was the agent of the betrayal. So, tares and wheats, there's an underlying principle here that applies. Yes, it applies to the church, but it applied to the final year and a half of Christ's ministry first. And then it applied to the church. And after the church is gone, it's going to be just as applicable in the tribulation. Because people will start getting saved in the tribulation. The adversary is going to just keep working those tares in there to expose them. The underlying circumstances of the kingdom of heaven mystery state are the circumstances of diabolical infiltration. The underlying circumstances of the kingdom of heaven mystery state are the circumstances of diabolical infiltration. That's what we have to deal with. The primary struggle is not with those outside of a local church. When the conflict rages, it rages from within the local church. Rebellion within the flock or, or uh, false teaching that creeps in unawares or, or some kind of discord and, and turmoil that happens right here. That's why McGee said he didn't care at all about the honky-tonks on Saturday nights. He says, I'm worried about the pulpits on Sunday mornings. He understood wheat and tares. He understood what the, the conditions of the, of the church were all about, the kingdom of heaven mystery state. 
All right, that's two of the seven parables. Next week, Lord willing, rapture pending, we'll deal with leaven. Where we think if a, if a church is growing, that's a great thing. Well, is it? Is it truly growing? Is it the bread that's growing or is it the leaven that's growing? And if it's the leaven that's growing, it's not a good thing. We've got to examine that and start to ponder certain church growth models. Then the hidden treasure, the pearl of great price, the dragnet. We'll deal with all that. Lord willing, we have your pending. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for this day and the opportunity we have to study. Thank you for the nature of the kingdom of heaven as it presently is in its mystery state, Father, that it is uh, not of this age. It is not of this world. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom and we rejoice over that. Father, we can have confidence in knowing that as this uh, cosmos darkens, it is, uh, it is indeed slated for destruction. This cosmos will pass away and along with it, its lusts. We thank you for the privilege we have to lay up treasures in heaven. Thank you that we can focus on the things above where Christ is, not on the things that are on earth. We do uh, lift up our nation, Father, and pray that your hand would be upon it. Pray that it might be a hand of blessing and not a hand of uh, judgment. But in whatever case, we know that your will is going to be accomplished and we, uh, we're going to stay faithful day by day, moment by moment. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.